we've got a young lady that was addicted to pee and she was living in a pee house at 14 in the city and she came to us and she was living in home with a father who had abused her and she had called the police, the police came around, her mum made her drop the charges because she was, she was scared that all the kids were going to get taken off her by Oranga Tamariki and so now she's living back in that home. This girl attended school every day. She was our top student. She went away on the Team New Zealand Steinlager boat. She went on there. She got accepted into Vanguard Military School. She was just a star, absolute star. She had moved out and was living with her sister. Her sister's house, which was a kainga ora house, was in such a bad state. They weren't allowed to live there anymore. She went back home, didn't attend school, is now pregnant, dropped out and all of that hard work that she did to get to where she has has been undone because she's been put back into that situation. She does not have another choice. She's got nowhere else to go. So that that's really gutting, that somebody that had so much potential, she was just the most incredible student, can change that quickly. Just really sad. Unfortunately, that, that whole cycle, she's 15 and pregnant, is going to start again. Koto and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. So welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. We've got Cherie Jager, who has most recently been the principal of Maris Alternative Education School. I'm really excited to bring you on because I really want to understand a little bit more about what's happening in alternative education. I went through mainstream school, so I don't really have an idea about what happens there and what outcomes you guys have and what work you have been doing there. But first of all, I kind of want to just ask you a little bit about yourself. Have you always been a teacher? How long have you been a teacher? Have you worked outside of alternative education? Education. I'll let you uh, speak. <laughs> Thank you. Kia ora, Nina. I haven't always been a teacher. I went back to university at the ripe old age of 37. Wow. And yes, and I had, I, at the time, I had four kids. We, tra- we were living on a farm and I had to travel 70k each way to go to uni and graduated on the year I turned 40. So that was. My goodness. How old were your kids at the time? Oh, my youngest turned five when I started. So five, seven, 10 and 12. And what made you want to do that big move? Well, I'd always wanted to be a teacher and my next door neighbour actually had gone to university and I thought, oh, she can do it, I can do it too. I did, I applied and got in and yeah, the rest is history. Amazing. I can just, I can't imagine doing that with so many kids and all that. You must have had not a lot of sleep. <laughs> no, I actually, looking back now, I don't know how I did it. I really don't. I was very organised. I still remember my kids' four lunch boxes lined up on the bench every night, ready to go the next day. The crock pot was always on. And yeah, I don't don't know how I did it, but I did. 
Well done. (laughs) That's very inspiring because I think one of the things is that when we're in school, like in high school or whatever, people are constantly asking you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm guilty of asking people, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? When I don't even know what I want to be when I grow up. So it's really good to see that actually people can have a very windy career path or whatever you are when you're in your 20s doesn't have to be what you are when you're in your 30s or in your 40s or whatever. Like you can be more than one thing in your life. Absolutely. Like I said, I'm 55 and I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. (laughs) I still don't know. And I always tell our students as well, it's never too late to go back and train. It never is. NCEA, when you're so much pressure to get NCEA when you're in year 13, but actually once you turn 21, you don't need it to go back to university. So there's always that opportunity there. And that's the thing is that how you do in your NCA or in school or whatever doesn't define what you are no. later on, right? You can have you can be all sorts of different things. So one of my, my best friends, she didn't do so well at school, wasn't very academic, didn't really know what she's doing for most of her 20s. And now she's a police officer. Like I'm so proud of her. Now she's working in family violence and like the work that she's doing supporting these families and these young women. It's just, oh, I'm so proud of her, you know? And she didn't know that she wanted to be a police officer, but now she's really thriving and she's never academic, but she's doing this amazing job helping people. Yeah. You never know. You never know who you're going to meet on your journey or what things are going to happen to you that are going to pu- push you in one direction or another. I had a, one of my oldest son actually has ADHD. So we struggled with him a lot growing up. And I think that gave me the resiliency and the desire to want to help kids that are in the same position as them because the schools see them as the naughty kids. And I felt like a bad mother, but knowing that it wasn't his fault that he was the way that he was and there were different ways to parent him because he wasn't like the other kids that we had. Yeah. You know, being a mum of someone with ADHD, did your child like have ADHD diagnosis while you were training as a teacher or was this before? No. So we had, we had a six year gap between our two oldest and our two youngest. And when our next son, he was about four and I got out of the car one day and I always said to the kids, when you get out of the car, put your hand on the car and keep it on the car until we're leaving. And so this wee four-year-old got out of the car, put his hand on the car and my ADHD son just took off and ran across the road. And I thought, why is it that one of my boys can do this and the other one can't? And then I started putting piecing things together and he got diagnosed at, I think he was eight when he got diagnosed with ADHD. There had been a lot of incidences at school before that, that I had the guilt on me of being a bad mother that I'd raised this rat bag of a child. But until he was diagnosed, it it didn't change the way I looked at him, but it made me look at a different way of parenting him. Were you a teacher at this time? No, I wasn't. How does that, how is that coloured, like how you approach being a teacher kind of thing? I think it gives me a lot of empathy for parents who have children with ADHD definitely gives me empathy there and being able to think outside the square for them that you don't expect them to do what all the other kids do and you need to be teaching them differently and you need to be giving them directions differently and you need to be careful when there's a change to the routine for them so it's just it's given me when I see other teachers who don't cater their teaching style for students, any neurodiversity students. They don't cater it, they still do the same thing and they expect everybody to fit into that box where they don't fit into that box. They need something else. They need a different way of looking at the world or they have a different way of looking at the world, yeah. So how long have you been working in alternative education for? I've been at Maris for five years, which is catering for youth 
aged 13 to 16 who have become disengaged from mainstream education. And prior to that, I worked at Westbridge Residential School, which is a residential school, obviously, for students with major behavioural needs. How many Mm. of those kids do you think have an underlying diagnosis or undiagnosed neurodiversity, ADHD, autism? Probably 80% of them. Yeah. That's crazy, yeah, isn't it? it? Because yeah. I'm assuming a lot of these kids who disengaged, some of them were unwillingly disengaged by what I mean is asked to leave. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And I don't know that a diagnosis would have made much difference unless you had something that came with funding and support yeah. because classroom teachers don't have the resources, the time, the energy to be able to have a one-on-one program for a student with all these different learning needs. They just don't. And whether you get a your class list and you get all these different labels that the kids have got, you still can't meet everybody's individual needs. Because what happens in a classroom when you've got your 30 or so primary school age kids and one of them has blatant, very strong traits of ADHD, whether it's diagnosed or not. Like what, what's happening in the classroom? It's been a little while since I've been in primary school. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a while since I've taught in a primary school, actually, because <laughs> it would be what, eight years since I've taught in a primary school. But um, they tend to disrupt other students learning probably more than anything and be an absolute nightmare for the teacher. But I found that I spent a lot of time personally talking to the parents. And I always tried, with my kids now, with the kids back then, always tried to give lots of positives to parents with kids, especially with kids like that. You'd let them know, gee, little Johnny had such a fantastic day today. He put all his books away or he remembered to bring his shoes to school today. So giving them lots of positive feedback before you have to say, hey, he smashed a window or something. I think with those kids, especially I'm a real positive coming from a positive viewpoint as much as I can with those kids need lots of those positives because they've had so many negatives in their life. You're the naughty one, get out of the class. But So I think with them, it's trying to find different activities that they can do to keep them stimulated while you're trying to teach the rest of the class, trying to keep everything in order. Yeah, because yeah. like I've talked about neurodiversity in a previous episode with the partner of one of my colleagues and it's really interesting. So he is from the UK and if you listen to the podcast, it's an episode with Rich Rowley. So he was labelled as one of those naughty kids with this undiagnosed ADHD, like raging ADHD most of his life before being diagnosed in his 40s. Didn't really like school, felt stupid, left school, I think maybe a little bit early maybe and didn't go to university straight away and then as a laugh, decided to like do law school and then got into law school as like a mature student, became a lawyer and then was like doing that for a bit and then decided to do like a master's of computer science or something and then didn't show up to the lectures and then did an assignment like the day of and then got like a distinction, you know, stuff like that. Typical ADHD. Typical, typical. (laughs) And so sometimes I find it really hard because I'm like, oh, do I have ADHD? Because I feel like I am all these other things. I won't go into it, but you talk about the whole, did they bring the shoes to school today? And I'm like, oh, I just remember so many times like losing like my school uniform. I've got so much going on. I've got in trouble for a lot of talking, but because I was like really smart at school, it was, oh, it's okay. She's just, she's smart. So it's okay. Do you know what yeah, I mean? I and like girls I got... tend to, to not get diagnosed as much as boys either, I think, because their ADHD presents in a different way than boys are just out there. They yeah. just are. And girls, I, I, you probably do have ADHD. <laughs> I definitely have. <laughs> So what is it like in the alternative education school? So you say there's a lot of people who probably were labelled as naughty, ADHD, whatever. What is the, how is the approach different in alternative education? 
in my setting, where where we were in, at Marist, I think the difference is that we address the individual students' needs before any learning can take place. So those Maslow's needs, hierarchy of needs are met. We make sure they've got food when they come in in the morning. Some kids, again, in a mainstream school, kid might be sitting there starving all day and they're playing up because they're hungry. So they're fed. They're given a sense of belonging. They're given a sense of acknowledgement and a sense of hope for their future, that they're actually capable of achieving whatever I mean, they want to achieve. Those things seem like the basics. Those things, those things seem like what every child should have. So like, why do you think that's not happening? Because you've got to teach schools? reading, writing, maths. You've got to get this in and you've got to get that in and you've got to get an assessment done and you've got to get to this class and there's just not the time for it. And there's... We're very fortunate. We have 21 students, so we've got four staff catering to 21 students. We will have. We could have a punch up one one minute. The next minute, we've got kids vaping in the bathroom. Next minute, we've got a boyfriend and a girlfriend having a fight in the room. So our issues that we have aren't. You're not sitting down doing your maths, and you're not getting your reading finished, and you're not. You can't spell this word. It's about giving them social skills to be successful members of community more than anything. Like I say, you can always go back and train later in life. It's about meeting those needs. They don't feel loved. They don't feel like they belong. They don't feel like they're ever going to amount to anything. We make them feel all those things. We make them feel that they're important. And, and what are you noticing yeah. in these kids? Like, why aren't they feeling loved? I think along? there's a lot of different reasons. A lot of them, parents are too busy, so they're not, they're not, their needs aren't met by their parents. They're running around too busy. You know, it's an intergenerational thing. It's just the way that it was. The kids, they offer you go fend for yourself sort of thing. There's a lot of different contributing factors to it. I don't want to bring up the whole COVID thing, but we've noticed so much more anxiety and depression since COVID. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, with the kids being isolated so much, it's done a lot of damage. I fear for our kids in another five years' time. Having had, having those three years away from social interactions with their peers, I think that's going to be a major problem in the future. Yeah. Oh, I completely mm. agree. Yeah. That's what anecdotally, that's what I feel as well from yeah. what I was seeing in hospital as well. Seeing so many kids coming more coming with like mental health related conditions, yeah. right? What we call somatization, we're getting physical symptoms for anxiety, yep. or your eat, kids with eating disorders, yep. uh, kids with drug overdose. You just went, went, we weren't seeing that three or four years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the issues that we're seeing definitely are deeper, and they're going to be longer running as well. It's not something that's going to be a quick fix. Yeah, it's really not. So, yeah. what do you think is at a sort of very much like upstream, like level? Where do you think? Why do you think these kids are ending up in alternative education? Because schools aren't catering to their needs. What do you think needs mm. to be in the mainstream schools? In the perfect world, I think my opinion solely, is that if every school had a pastoral care person in the school that was solely responsible for making sure that those kids are okay, not filling out forms, not doing referrals, anything like that, just Cherie's mum's just had her appendix out and Cherie hasn't been in for a couple of days, what's going on? Oh, I'm just going to ring up and find out, hey, how's your mum? How did you get on? When you, when it, how, what can we do to get you back to school? Somebody just there to support those kids to be a, an ear, not a guidance counsellor, not a counsellor or anything like that just somebody to say Joe, I notice you haven't got any shoes and it's been a week you've had no shoes what can we do about that 
Because I feel like education is like a big topic yeah. in the news. Yeah. Politicians are talking about it, like different ways that we're going to improve education because there's all this stuff coming out about reduced literacy rates and numeracy yeah. rates and et cetera, et cetera. But the way I see it, I'm like, oh God, there's so many more things like upstream, even from reforming the education system. Like you said, the whole not having shoes or not having the support. And we can reform how we teach maths and English or whatever, like as much as you like. But if we do nothing to actually support these families with their basic needs, like you talk about Maslow's hierarchy, like making sure that these families have are not undergoing such severe economic hardship. Yeah. These kids are able to actually get to school. Their kid, these kids are fed. There's no point in like rewriting the curriculum if we can't do no, the basic stuff. No. And if you don't get those things right, they're not going to learn no matter what you do, no matter what the curriculum looks like. If those things aren't right, they are not going to learn. Yeah, They're not going to be in the headspace to be able to take on any more information. If you've got all of this stuff going on in the back of your head, I had to sleep on the floor last night because we had 17 family members at our house and there wasn't enough food. And then I go to school the next day and I'm expected to sit there and do calculus or something. That's so unfair to expect anybody to have to do that under those conditions. Yeah. What do you think about how we measure like success like in a school in terms of like academic success in a school? Yeah, I d again, I don't, from, a, from an alternative education point of view, to me, success is a kid turning up to school every day. That to me is a huge thing to celebrate. And we always celebrate the kids that turn up every day. Are they talking with their peers? Are they communicating? Are they smiling? Are they wanting to do the work? I, the funny thing is you get the kids come in and they're so disengaged from everybody, they're removed from the situation. And then you see in about three or four months down the line, all of a sudden they're starting to integrate with the other kids and they're doing stuff with them and they're wanting to come, they're wanting to learn. They're actually, the kid's asking, can we go to class? Because they they feel content within themselves and they, they, everything else is in place while they're at school not to say it is at home, that they are ready to learn. And I would, so my measure of success is, are they turning up? Are they happy? Are they eventually becoming involved in the program and doing the mahi? How easy yeah. is it to get them to school? How, well, you have to give them a place where they feel safe and valued and loved and they will want to come. They do want to come. They, there is no question about that because though they do feel secure there. And yeah. what do you guys do from an academic point of view in alternative education? So we do, our year 11s do maths, English and pathways through Tikura. So we just facilitate that program. It's all online. Our year 9s and 10s, we try and do inquiry-based learning. Lesson, the English and literacy and numeracy is integrated into whatever lesson we're doing. As an example, we recently have another Marist school in Gisborne who were affected by the floods. So we thought about we would like to give back to them. What can we do? And the kids decided that we were going to do a fundraiser. We have a an Italian, authentic Italian member on our staff who happens to make pizzas at markets and things. So we decided, the kids decided that we would make pizzas and they had to investigate. They had to work out how much it was going to cost and what sort of pizzas we we're going to make, how much will be charged. They made posters up, so they did a bit of art, a bit of visual art. They had to use the oral language, go around to all of the businesses in our area and sell the pizzas. And then they had to do the maths to work out. And we ended up raising... 
$526. Well done. For the school in Gisborne, which was really cool. And there was a lot of really important learning in that as well. Everybody had their role to play. And, and if you didn't do your bit, then the next bit wouldn't be able to happen. So we try and do our learning through something that the kids are interested in. You were saying that some of these kids have had behavioural issues like in their mainstream schools, but you've brought them all together to the one school. Yeah. What's that like? Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question because a lot of our parents whose students come in and they might just have a bit of anxiety or they might just not have wanted to go to school think that Alti just got all these naughty kids that are going around beating each other up. But once they get there, there is a high level of respect for staff members and the other students role model that respect. So we don't have a lot of incidents that happen at the centre because that that mutual respect is there. So we respect the student and the student respects us in return. And I think one of the biggest things that, that we had, as an example, we had two brothers that came in 2020 and I was told by the police don't take these boys on. They're really, they're violent, very big boys. And there was an attack on some other students which had been caught on video and we were said, he said, do not get them in. Anyway, I got the mum in and the mum just idolised her boys. And all through school, they weren't academically very able, all through school they had been labelled the naughty boys, always labelled as that. So I decided I could see something in these boys and decided, no, I'm going to take them on. And they had been at school, they were attending one or two days a week, just not attending. Got them in and just made them feel valued, but also made their mum feel valued. Recognised her love for her boys and wanting her boys to do their best that they could do. These boys stayed with us for 18 months. They had 100% attendance. The younger brother had three days off when he was sick. That was it. And one of them is doing an apprenticeship now and the other one is, both of them are working. They come back and visit me in their car. What I did with them, the first day that they were there, I rang the mum and said, do you know what, your boy, I went to walk through the door and he opened the door for me. I said, that was, kids just don't do that anymore. And so every day I'd ring her and tell her something positive that her boys had done. So her relationship with me was really positive, which transpired onto her boys because her boys saw me seeing all these positive things in them where they'd never seen that before. And the saddest thing is, I took those boys back to their high school because I was so proud of them and the principal did not want to see them. Not interested. They're violent boys. We don't want to know about them. So the other thing that we do at the centre is that every day is a new day. It doesn't matter what happened the day before, they come in and they're treated clean slate every day. Yeah. So you start from zero again. Not judged on anything that you've done in the past. That's all in the past now. Yeah. And it feels like mm. these days with like access to information and the internet and stuff, it's like everything that you do is set in stone. You've done this and this is who you are and that's who you will yeah. always yeah. be. There's no second chances. Yeah, and I think that probably is what leads to a lot of anxiety and depression in our youth as well because they feel like that. But it doesn't have to be like that. Everybody can change. Everybody has the opportunity to make amends for what they've done or to improve themselves. Do you think that this kind of approach of this holistic pastoral care that you're providing or you have provided, is that something that's echoed in other alternative education providers? 
Yeah, definitely. I've, we, we have a lot to do with the, we meet once a month with all the other alternative education providers in Auckland. And it's really interesting to get together to talk about the issues that our youth are facing and especially in Auckland, all very similar issues that they're facing. And the staff who work in Old Ed are all very passionate about their youth. They're all very, they have a lot of empathy and a lot of love to give and a lot of understanding about what these kids are going through. And a lot of staff, be it from me growing up, had a bit of a struggle growing up, and then I've had struggles with a couple of my kids. Most people who are in Old Ed have dealt with some adversity somewhere along the line in their lives, some major incidents in their lives but most of them have been through a bit to be able to have that understanding of what our kids go through. Do you think that there's a, any change in demand for kids being asked to leave or expelled from mainstream education? It's the Not, same. It's probably much the same. What we are noticing is a lot more truancy and a lot more anxiety and depression has come through, a lot more than major behavioural issues that we were having. And also it's like with any anything really. Things go in waves as well. So you'll get a group of kids that do this or a group of kids that do that. But at the moment, there's a lot of anxiety and depression out there and kids not wanting to go to school. So that would be a lot of our referrals are because of truancy at the mm. moment. Yeah. Because there's a lot mm. of talk about school attendance and all that. And do you think things like increasing truancy offices and things like that work? It's one of those things where like, carrot or stick, carrot or stick. Yeah, yeah. And I and again, I go back to my, yes, I think having truancy officers there who have their heart in the right place and who address the kids' needs, I think, yes, absolutely, it will work. But again, I think of every single school in New Zealand had one pastoral care worker that rung up and said, why are you not coming in today? Oh, I don't have a bus ticket. Here you go, here's a bus ticket, so you can get into school now. Because mm. things like a bus ticket or breakfast, I'm like, yep. that's cheap. Yep. That's cheap. It's a lot cheaper than, you know, the consequences of kids who grow up with limited education yeah. and limited job opportunities. Yeah. It's much cheaper to just feed people. It's such an easy fix. But if you're not aware of that's what the issue is, or if you're not aware that this behaviour can be because of some other underlying thing, rather than just thinking they're just naughty, but hey, let's have a think about, oh, you know, grandma down in Gisborne has is, is just had a heart attack and I'm really worried about grandma, but I don't have anyone to tell that I'm worried about grandma because my mum's crying. I don't want to tell her I'm worried about grandma, but how am I meant to then do my learning? But if you just had one person that you could talk to or one person to say, hey, you're looking a bit sad today. What's going on? Do you want to talk about it? What difference that could make in somebody's life? If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So what are you noticing with social media and young people these days? Where do you start with social media? I think one of the scariest things that I've noticed with social media is the the access that kids are getting younger and younger to things they shouldn't be getting until they're way older. I had a young girl at the centre who, she's four, 15 now, she was addicted to porn from the age of nine. And she was talking quite openly about it. We, 
one of the things at Maris is that we do talk openly about a lot of things and conversations that you would not have in a mainstream school we have with our kids, which is quite nice. But she was saying that she was so addicted to porn that wherever she went, she'd have her phone out and she'd be watching porn on her phone. And she ended up going to a, a counsellor and, and has worked through that and is no longer she can laugh about it now which is really good but that's really scary to think that our kids are looking at some other couple having sex and that's what they think is the norm for having sex this is what it should look like and along those lines the same with body image what you look like what your hair looks like what you're wearing what you what you've been seen to be out there doing and it's very scary so I'm 28 turning 29 and I'm probably on social media a little bit too much, but I would say that I was on the cusp edge of like when social media was becoming a thing. Like I was a teenager when we had Bebo and, you know, <laughs> we used a little bit of MySpace, but didn't really know how to use it. And yes, we had like free text weekends, shout out to Vodafone or, well, you know, <laughs> they used to be called Vodafone. And it was just very different because we just hung out with our friends. We had sleepovers, we watched yep. movies, we went for bike rides, things like that. And now I'm seeing these kids addicted to social media, addicted to YouTube, TikTok. But I think what's really scary is seeing the amount of influence that social media influencers have on young people. And they are making tons of money just taking photos of themselves with various brands and all that just on the internet. And these young people are following that and they're thinking, oh, this is like something we should aspire to be like. We should dress like that. We should look like that. We should also want to be social media influencers. And I don't think there's anything specifically wrong about being a social media influencer, but I guess it's just that the thought that all these children are thinking that these are the people I should idolise, yeah. these are the people I should aspire to be. Kids over the school holidays, they could sit in their room for three or four days and not talk to another person because they're on the social media doing whatever it is they do on social media. But I was thinking a bit of devil's advocate here when Elvis Presley came out and everybody thought he was the devil incarnate because he was doing the pelvis thrust and things like that, that maybe, sadly social media has, is the new norm. And I don't think you can stop it. Yeah. Well, you can't stop it now. And I guess it's about giving parents, giving their kids the tools to be able to differentiate between what is right and what is wrong and what is what healthy things to be looking at, not worrying about what you look like and what you're wearing. Mm. But it does come down to education or parents being responsible for what their kids are looking at on on their phones and their devices, yeah. Mm. What's the alternative education approach to things like drugs? So we, a lot of our kids are regular marijuana users. We had a girl that was huffing who we, not at school, but she was huffing and her mum was really concerned about it. She ended up going into Odyssey, which was great for her. What's Odyssey? Um, Odyssey is the residential rehab place. So there's one for kids, there's one for adults. Yeah, for drugs. Yeah, for drugs, yeah. So there's one in Christchurch and Auckland's was closed down for a couple of years, the youth one, because of COVID, unfortunately. But we have a lot of contact with CADS and the, the youth drug service and their they're fantastic. And their message isn't about not doing drugs. It's about being responsible about around your choices of doing drugs, when you do them, who you do them with, what you're doing. So we will not tolerate anybody coming to school under the influence of anything. They get sent home. But it's about education. So if there is an issue that comes up, rather than 
telling the kids not to do it or what they should be doing. We will try and source education for them and for the parents. Great, because I was of the generation of absolutely drugs are bad, alcohol is bad, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think alcohol is like definitely much worse than some of these other drugs. (laughs) Yep, you're not wrong. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And that's not addressed Whereas the odd marijuana user is, we have one-on-one conversations with all of our kids every day and we know if there's a little change in their personality or if they seem a little bit tired today or a bit scratchy today or a little bit too happy today. So we notice those changes in them. We're fortunate Mm. in our setting, yeah. And Mm. something else that has been talked to death about in the media is things like youth crime. Is this something that is involved with the kids that are in alternative education? Is this something, do these kids who have been involved in youth crime, do they get then put into alternative education or is it the other way around? A bit of both really. So we've got, we've had one student just recently that was appointed to us through Oranga Tamariki who are involved with youth justice. So we have we do have a lot of kids that are that have the youth justice involved. We have a really good relationship with our youth aid officer on the shore. So the kids are do have a lot of conditions placed on them. The ones some of them have to attend every day, which they don't like at all. But they and they can also do some community hours at the centre as well to if they've got a fine or something like that. We were actually ram raided last year our centre. And our centre is, and I don't I don't know if but alternative education is not fully funded by the ministry. Right. So we get 50% of our funding through the ministry and we get the rest of it through grants and donors. So we're not wealthy and we're not very well resourced. Our Alted Centre is in a commercial building, which is a garage basically. So it's not really fit for purpose either. We don't have an outside area. We've got no windows. We're just in a dark garage. My goodness. And yeah, it is. It's sad. It's really sad because I just feel what Altied could do if they had a beautiful setting with a workshop and a, some chickens and a garden. Yeah. It would be my dream to have a place like that. So when we got ram raided, it was really gutting. And it was, I think, one of our students. Unfortunately, the cameras couldn't pick up. The number plate was just lit up, so you couldn't see what the number plate was. But it was just a basically a middle finger to me from a student, unfortunately, yeah. And that was that's a huge disruption to the centre and a violation of our space, yeah. What surprises me a lot is parents that we have of our students that don't know where their kids are. So when my kids were teenagers and growing up, were growing up, I knew where they were every minute of the day. And if they were going to visit a friend, I would talk to the parent to make sure that the parent knew that they were there. The parents of our kids in particular, their kids go out on a Friday night, they come home on a Sunday. They're not monitored. Nobody knows where they are. They're not answerable to anybody. So if you've got all that freedom, what's stopping you doing whatever you want to do because you've got all that freedom? And then there's no consequence anyway. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is. I do think a a lot of it is around parenting. And again, I know what it was like for me feeling like I was a bad mother having ADHD, but I did everything I possibly could to keep my kids safe and to know where they were and who they were with. Yeah. And so obviously with alternative education, part of it is with the kids. And then like how much work do you guys do with the parents? I did a lot of work with the parents. I felt like a counsellor. (laughs) <laughs> I would get quite often get phone calls from parents. You, I'd get phone calls from parents saying, oh, I've been on the internet all night and he had, didn't get to sleep until five o'clock this morning. And I said, why don't you turn the internet off? 
oh no, we can't do that. It's going to stop them being on the internet or not if they don't have the internet. So there's, yeah, I have a lot of involvement with my parent, with the parents. Some of them I just shake my head and just think. But there, there's not a lot of support out there for parents who are struggling with their teens. And on a day-to-day level, not a not even a ram raiding and a drug taking and a binge drinking whatever level, just on a day-to-day level, coping with the day-to-day things. That Where do you turn to for help with that? And how do you know what options are out there for you to try? Give this a go. Have a go at turning off your internet. Have a go at making your kid hand their phone in it. You don't know, you can say 11 o'clock at night or something, but ha- try these different things. But if you don't know that there's other ways of doing things, then how are you meant to change what you're doing or make a difference? Yeah. How come you're leaving alternative education? Oh, that's the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) I think more than anything, I need a bit of a break. We deal with some pretty meaty issues on a daily basis. My phone is never off and I'll have parents ringing me all day, all night. I'll have police ringing me all day, all night. And I just feel that I need to go somewhere to recharge and to not see issues that our kids are facing as being normal. Somebody told me that their child had, I don't know, stolen their car and gone for a joyride around the block. I'd be like, oh yeah, okay. You feel like it's almost like you're normalising it now, you're a bit desensitised, which is dangerous, isn't it? Yes, and that's what it is. It's a desensitisation is what frightens me probably more than anything. And I just feel that I need to get back into me again. I had a bit of depression last year and I feel like our space contributed towards that depression because we're in a garage all day, every day working in a garage, dealing with some some high needs. And I just find it really sad that we can't have somewhere that would fit our kids so well, that we could have a kitchen that the kids could learn how to cook and we could have a garden and we could have a wood workshop. And that I find that really sad. I feel like if I had the resources to be able to have a five acre block, it would be heaven. It would be just, I would just love it. It would, that would, I could do so much more for these kids than what we can do where we are now. It's interesting because these kids are probably higher risk of not achieving well-paying jobs and good numeracy, literacy, all of those poor prognostic indicators of overall well-being as an adult because they've already gotten themselves to this place in education in their life. But it sounds like that society's kind of given up a little bit if they're putting so little funding into helping these high risk kids. Yeah, absolutely. And that that was one of my struggles. So part of my job was also to get funding wherever, wherever we could. When COVID hit, the schools were all given laptops so that every student had a device. We weren't. So not all of our kids had devices over COVID. Some of them used their phones. We provided internet for them if they didn't have internet. We have just now, actually two weeks ago, we've now got one device per student at our school. So when kids are doing online learning, it makes it really difficult to be able to You can't do online learning if you don't have something to access online. (laughs) No, you can't. But we were very fortunate that one of of the students' grandmothers donated three Chromebooks to the school and shout out to Harcourts. They gave us some refurbished laptops as well. So now we have enough for all of our students. So just the little things like that that Altied misses out on. Our kids can't play in team sports. So when they come to us, they stay on the roll 
of the school they were at, but they're dual enrolled, so they're on their role and on our role, but they still can't make use of the tech block and the library and the sporting things, so they miss out. They're disadvantaged all over again because they're coming to, to Marist, because they're attending Marist, yeah, which is, it is really sad. It's the kids with the greatest need get the least. And I feel like that's everywhere in our society. It doesn't make any sense. Nope. No, it's so wrong. It is so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you could do one thing. Well, I saw, no, we'll give you three. We'll give you three. If you could do three things to make things better for these kids, whether it's preventing them from being ousted from mainstream school or making their experience at alt-ed better, what do you think is the top three things that you would do? First thing that I would do would be move to somewhere that I've got some land that would definitely to me it would be the dream job it would be just I can just imagine getting out there and getting on the tractor and building a fence and collecting the eggs from the chickens and having them responsible for these things the students responsible for it so that would be my one that would fix it all (laughs) that would be amazing yeah and I, I just wish that mainstream teachers were more understanding and empathetic of these students and just realising some of the the barriers that these kids have before they even start the day. There's some, we've got a young lady that was addicted to pee and she was living in a pee house at 14 in the city and she came to us and she was living in home with a father who had abused her and she had called the police, the police came around, her mum made her drop the charges because she was she was scared that all the kids were going to get taken off her by Oranga Tamariki. And so now she's living back in that home. This girl attended school every day. She was our top student. She went away on the Team New Zealand Steinlager boat. She went on there. She got accepted into Vanguard Military School. She was just a star, absolute star. She had moved out and was living with her sister. Her sister's house, which was a kainga ora house, was in such a bad state. They weren't allowed to live there anymore. She went back home, didn't attend school, is now pregnant, dropped out, and all of that hard work that she did to get to where she has has been undone because she's been put back into that situation. She does not have another choice. She's got nowhere else to go. So that that's really gutting, that somebody that had so much potential. She was just the most incredible student, can change that quickly. Just really sad. Unfortunately, that that whole cycle, she's 15 and pregnant, is going to start again. So that's heartbreaking. So then I would also have a teen parenting unit attached to my farmland that I yes. have <laughs> so that we could, because we're on the North Shore, there isn't a teen parenting unit on the North Shore. So I would dearly love to see a teen parenting unit over there as well. Yeah. Because, yeah, if you can get, if you can have a teen parenting unit and you can get those mums there, you can make a world of a difference for that baby. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And also they can still value their own education and mm. see that you can have a baby but still have a career and still you fulfill did those goals. <laughs> exactly, and four babies and I still did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That would be a, yeah, another part of my little village that I would be making. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's like this ongoing discussion that I have with my partner about how should like education be done? What's the best way to do it for your at-risk kids, your low socioeconomic kids, the naughty kids, the quote-unquote naughty kids and all that? 
because there's like this teacher in the UK who's a bit controversial with this controversial-ish school that apparently has really good outcomes for their low socioeconomic, high immigrant like population of kids. It's very like strict school, no talking in the hallway kind of thing, like teachers write, blah, 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 blah. But they do some very liberal things like at school, like at lunchtime, everyone like helps out with serving up lunch or like doing the dishes and all this kind of stuff. And they all have a lot of stuff about like gratitude. Like at the end of lunchtime, they get all the kids to like volunteer to say what they're grateful for, whether it's yeah. like their parent or their teacher and all that kind of stuff. And I just wonder with this whole, they have a more classical way of teaching. And I just find it interesting, like that contrasted with what we have in some of our primary schools, like with the modern learning environment. Yeah, oh, I could not cope with teaching in a modern learning environment. <laughs> I, I don't would know. Not, yeah, because no. I find it really interesting because we talk about those kids who are labelled as naughty. I feel like if I was in a modern learning environment, I'd probably be labelled as naughty because I'd just be talking all the time. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And then you get the other side, of the, the flip side of that coin, where I was talking about my youngest son, who he, the school he went to, he was just one of those kids that just did the work and just, he wasn't great and he wasn't terrible, he just was just there. And I can't even remember what happened. Oh, that's right. The kids all had to make a poster. And of course, this was a Catholic school. So all the parents made their kids these amazing posters. And my son, I made him make his own. I said, no, I'm not helping you. This is your project. And the teacher didn't hang his poster on the wall. And he came home. He was so upset. And he said, my teacher never notices me. She never says anything to me. She doesn't hang my stuff on the wall. And so I went in and talked to the teacher. And she, in a modern learning environment, had said exactly that. She said that she had, she actually cried when I told her. She said, yeah. She said, he, because he's not naughty, he's not good. He's just there. I'd, she doesn't have, she never spoke to him, never had a conversation with him. So kids like that can get so lost in that environment. If you're not the naughty one, if you're not the bright one, you're just the one that's just there, plodding along, then a real danger for those kids as well. You always think about the naughty ones, how do we cater for them and how do we cater for the gifted ones? But what about those ones in the middle? What about them? They're just as important. How do you meet their needs as well? Yeah. And just talking about the way that you're talking about that school. So it's similar to how we are because the kids come in the morning and we start with a morning hui. So the kids are all in a circle. We talk about how we're feeling, how's everybody today. And if there's something pops up, we'll talk about that. The kids hand in their phones and their vapes every morning so they don't have their phones all day, which for them, it's really freeing because they don't have any outside pressure on them. There's, they don't need to check their phone all the time. They just know they don't have their phone, that's it. So I'm really strict about that and I'm really strict about not swearing. And the kids know that. Funnily enough, a kid rang me two days ago. He was depressed because his girlfriend had dumped her. And he started saying something about, oh, the fucking, oh, sorry. And then he kept talking. So that little thing about not swearing has stayed with him, which is really good. <laughs> I'm um, not very good at sticking with it. <laughs> yeah. No, my kids, man. Me neither. I have a potty hey, mouth. <laughs> me, yeah, me too, but not them. But So then we have our classes throughout the day. The afternoon program is a social skills program, some game or something about social skills. And then they all do their jobs because, like I said, we're a charity, we can't afford a cleaner. So the kids all have turns at cleaning the toilets, doing the dishes, vacuuming the floor, cleaning the windows, putting the rubbish out. And so then everybody does their bit around that. And then we end the day with a Purupura Akia meeting at the end of the day just to go over the highlights of the day and what went well, what do you think you did really well or what do you think you've 
person opposite you did really well and that's how we end our day as well round it all up at the end of the day so yeah it's That's interesting because that is mm. very similar to that school I was talking about yeah, I think just it's called when Michaela you said that, school or anything because yeah. I think they're I think they get a lot of flack for being conservative with the small c and very strict and yep. all that but I think what they're also trying to say is that we have strict rules that the kids have to follow the teachers also have to show that they love the kids yeah. and all that. I think that's yeah. really important. It sounds like that's what you do in alt ed is that if strict rules, boundaries. structure, boundaries. Yeah. But yeah. also, you obviously it obviously comes across that you guys really care about these kids as well, and you show it. Absolutely, and that's what I said when we have kids in for initial meetings before they start. I said the only role that I've got is that you are respectful to yourself, the staff, and the other students. That's it. So if that's what you do, then everything's going to be fine here. It's all I expect of you. And if everybody respected everybody in the same way, then you won't have any problems. Yeah, I'd like to know a bit more about mainstream school because, like I said, it's been a little while and I'm like, is there neither structure and strict rules nor is there affection from your teacher in like a modern learning environment? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I know that it's in my nature to be affectionate anyway and I went from teaching new entrants in a little farm environment in the bottom of the South Island to teaching these high behavioural needs up here. So it was a real culture shock for me. But I was always loving and caring. It was the way that I, how I, just me, just the way that I am. But a lot of people aren't. They're in there to do the business, get the maths done, get this done and move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. So a lot of people- Hour of maths, hour of English. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And heaven forbid, should somebody finish early or want to work for a little bit longer? And that's the other thing that we do. We don't have a bell. So we might do maths and we might do it for 45 minutes and then everybody's absolutely- clawing at the walls so we'll just say come on let's go have a game of basketball we don't have to wait for the bell to ring which we're really lucky about or we might be doing writing doing some writing and it might be going amazingly and an hour and a half later we're like oh hey we better go and have a break we've been sitting in here for this long so we're not we don't have the confines of a mainstream school which is I think is the best thing about alt ed is that we cater to the kids needs someone's had enough then go off you go for a walk not what are you doing? Get back in your seat. So we're lucky that we can do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your experience in alternative education. It's very enlightening to see <laughs> the work that you're doing, but also the high needs that these kids have. And we should really try and cater to these kids a bit more because, like I say, they're, they're at risk of not reaching their potential yeah. more so than yeah, other kids. Absolutely. So I've got one last question. So where is your favourite part of New Zealand, like the whole part of the country? What's your favourite place? Gisborne. Born and bred in Gisborne. I have my heart in Gore, which we lived down there for a long time, my heart in Auckland, but Gisborne is where I was brought up. So it's my, yeah, I've just actually just come back from Gisborne. What do you love about it? The beaches. Best beaches in New Zealand. It's beautiful. Wine? Is that wine? Is that around there? Or am I getting that wrong? Yeah. I've just got very bad geography. <laughs> is wine a big thing in Gisborne? <laughs> yeah, wine. Yes, yes, there's vineyards there. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah, lots of fruit and veggies, good avocados from down there. And the weather is beautiful. Yeah. That's a beautiful place. Yeah, although they were hit really badly yeah, by the I was going to ask you, yeah, yeah. do you have yeah. much photo there? And, that, or- no, I actually met my mum there. She's down in Gore now, so yeah. she was there for a school re- reunion. We went down there, but I do love the beaches down there. And how's beautiful. Gisborne at the moment post not too bad actually there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of signs that the golf course looked quite bad but other than that they've done a really good job of cleaning up yeah amazing yeah yeah 
Oh, that's good to hear. Hmm. Promising. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Nina. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Um.